like I was saying, just being able to get together like this is um, easily taken for granted. And I know I do it a lot. Forgive me. God, it is our honor to stand here, sit here with Bibles open on our lap and free from any fear of persecution. And yet, Lord, we, we're not here just to go through some religious motion. I think we're all here because we want more Jesus. We wouldn't roll out on a Wednesday night. Nobody's forcing us. We're here because we're hungry. We're hungry for your word. We're hungry to hear from you. We're all in areas of our lives where we need a touch from you, a word from you. And we need to be strengthened in our faith. And so, Lord, I can't do any of that, obviously, but your spirit can through your word. So, Lord, have your way in this place. And when we leave, Father, what I pray is that we would all just be more excited about Jesus. And we ask that in your name. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, we're continuing our study through Leviticus. And um, just to kind of, uh, you know, I do this a lot, but just to kind of get, a, as Pastor Steve would say, a running start at it. So we kind of jog our brains back into Leviticus mode uh, after the long week. Um, just a quick reminder, the book of Leviticus um, was written by Moses while they're at, still at Mount Sinai. And if you guys remember the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacles built, dedicated, filled with the glory of God, and, and now they're really kind of ready to push on from there into the promised land. But before they do that, God speaks to Moses and gives him what is what we call Leviticus. And basically what that means is pertaining to uh, the Levites. And it was, in a sense, I mean, this is probably a very loose way of looking at it, but in a sense, kind of a handbook for the Levites who were the priestly tribe. Remember, they were a special tribe. They didn't get an inheritance in the land, which we'll talk about at some point. They were God's chosen tribe to minister to him and minister to the people. And so they were charged with the keeping of the tabernacle, the priesthood, and all of those things. And this is somewhat of a handbook for them on how to instruct the people. And here's the key. This is what I want us to keep visiting as we go through this. How they were to approach a holy God in worship and in their lifestyle, how they lived. In fact, if you remember from our introduction, one of the key verses is uh, chapter 20, verse 26, where it says, um, be holy for I, the Lord, am holy. So the question is, how do we as God's chosen holy people, the Israelites might say, approach this holy, awesome God in a way that is acceptable to him and pleasing to him? And so we talked about a very easy outline to just remind you. Um, chapters 1 through 16 deal with the idea of sacrifice approaching God, that you can't approach God without sacrifice. We'll talk about that again tonight. And then in verses, or chapters 17 through 27 deals with the idea of separation. That is living in a holy way. And we're, I mean, we're going to visit it, visit it, and revisit it. But that's kind of the, the main flow of the book. We started last week in the first couple of chapters, which is part of the first section within uh, Leviticus. Chapters 1 through 7 are dealing with Five offerings, five sacrifices that the children of Israel could bring to God. Three of those are what were called voluntary or sweet-smelling aroma sacrifices. Voluntary. Two of those are mandatory. We got through the first two. We got through the burnt offering and the grain offering. Tonight we're going to look at the third one, which is the peace offering. It is the last of the voluntary offerings. And then next week, 
We're going to get a running start and hit a bunch more info, and we're going to look at the mandatory offerings that were there. Now, I'm trying not to lose you in the introduction, but um, keep in mind that all of these things point us ultimately to Jesus, to Jesus. Just If you went to Sunday school, you know if I ever ask a question, just say Jesus, and you're probably right. So, yes, it's going to talk to us about Jesus. So tonight, let's go ahead and get into it. I think what I'll do, since it's a short chapter, just going to read through it, and then we'll go back and discuss it, and we're going to leave some time at the end to pray and to uh, take communion tonight, and you'll see why. So chapter 3, verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if you have an NIV, it'll say fellowship offering. If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is in the entrails, the two kidneys, the fat that is on uh, them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 6, if the offering for a sacrifice of the peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock. So it's going to repeat some of the same information, but instead of it being from the herd, it's now coming from the flock. Male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer his food offering to the Lord, its fat. He shall remove uh, the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails and all, that, all the fat, that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat <laughs> that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. In his, if his offering, excuse me, is a goat, then he shall offer it uh, before the Lord and lay his hand on the head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar and he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering um, to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails, the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, the loins of the long lobe and the liver he shall remove with the kidneys. Verse 16, the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering, a pleasing aroma. <sighs> Verse 16 at the end, all fat is the Lord's. Amen. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in your dwelling places that you eat neither the fat or the blood. Lord, one more time, I just want to pause and pray because we read these things and we can just shake our head and go, what? So Lord, bring clarity to all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Good job hanging in there. Um, somebody said to me, I think it was last week, they're like, so the book of Leviticus, it gets a little repetitive. And I just went, you haven't seen anything yet. Oh, it gets repetitive. But God doesn't repeat himself for no reason. There's always a reason. He's not just trying to make the Bible thicker, and he's not just trying to waste our time. 
Um, there's always purpose behind what he says. So let's talk about this a little bit. We'll go back. First of all, we need to kind of define, you know, this peace offering. It says, verse 1, if the offering of the sacrifice of a peace offering, what is a peace offering? And what is, how does it differ from the other offerings? So a peace offering, as I said, the NIV sometimes call it a fellowship. Anybody have an NIV that wants to admit it? I'm just kidding. There's nothing wrong with the NIV. Um, it says fellowship. I actually think the NIV nails it on that because that's a, a great way of defining that particular offering. The word peace there for a peace offering um, carries the idea of an offering for an alliance, for fellowship, and even, listen, friendship. Alliance, fellowship, friendship. Interesting, I did a little digging on that word, and, the, and I can't pronounce it, but the, uh, the root word for the word peace there um, is actually shalem, which doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it sounds like another Hebrew word that we're familiar with. Shalom. And it's actually the root word for that. Shalom. And it kind of carries this idea, the reason I'm bringing that out, is that it's this idea of intimacy and completeness and wholeness. It's more than just, listen, this peace offering is signifying more than just the absence of conflict, but the idea of wholeness and intimacy and fellowship and communion. Does that make sense? It's a peace offering. This was the most joyful of all of the offerings. It was, in essence, signifying that I'm having a meal with God. I'm having communion with Him. I'm having fellowship with Him. Amen? Does that make sense? So that's kind of the idea. So the interesting thing about this, as we read through that, you probably recognized, um, if you were here last week, that a lot of the procedure for this offering sounds familiar. It's, it's very much like the burnt offering that we saw in chapter 1. The same kind of elements are going into it, some of the same actions. And that's true. There are a lot of similarities, but there are also some variances or some unique features to the peace offering that really set it apart. And so let's do this uh, as a way of looking at this chapter instead of, you know, kind of going back and dissecting each thing. <laughs> dissecting. Um, let's uh, look at it this way. Let's first of all just talk about the similarities uh, in this offering compared to the burnt offering, and then we'll look at the, the, the variances, and there's some really neat pictures and applications as we get towards the end. But let's, let's take a run at this. So first of all, what are, some of the, um, what are some of the similarities of the burnt peace offering as it relates to the burnt offering? Number one, if you're note-taking, is that like the burnt offering, the peace offering was voluntary. Now, think about that for a second. This is voluntary. You don't have to bring your oxen. You don't have to bring your goat. You don't have to bring your lamb. It's not a got to. It's a what? A get to. I used to tell my kids that. They're so sick of hearing it when they were kids. We got to go to church? Nope. We don't got to go to church. We get to go to church. And so that's the idea here. They don't got to offer something to God. They get to. This was something that originated in their heart. They would say, I want to come and I want to offer this free will voluntary offering to God. Now just kind of hold on to that because it's all, again, picturing Christ and, and our response to that as well. The second thing you'll notice is that um, they could, just like the, the burnt offering, they could take their animal from the herd 
or the flock, meaning like a cow or a bull rather, um, or an oxen or a sheep or a goat. So there were some, um, in fact, if you understood how the, the chapter went together, it was the same thing. It was just applying it to different animals. So that's why it's so repetitive. Thirdly, um, not only is it similar in its voluntary in that they could bring from the herd or from the flock, but did you notice they have to present it to the Lord? They bring it to the, 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 the opening of the tent of meeting, and then this whole procedure that we've talked about, we're going to talk about, and we'll talk about again, where they bring their animal, whether it be an ox or, or a lamb or a goat, and they lay their hand upon the head of that animal, and as they're doing that, the priest comes then and, it's, first of all, inspects the animal, makes sure it's without blemish, without any kind of defect. And then if it's deemed pure, without spot or, or blemish, then the worshiper would lay his hand on the head of that animal, as we talked about last week. And in so doing, what, what was happening is it's a symbolic transfer. Symbolic. Symbol, I say that because there's really no way for an animal to pay for the sins of a human, right? That's what it says in Hebrews. That's why, Jesus, that's why every one of these sacrifices was accepted by God, but they all pointed forward into the future where there would be one final adequate sacrifice with no need to ever have another sacrifice. It's Jesus, the Lamb of God. Amen? So, but it was very clear, very, you know, out, you know, everybody understood what was going on. They would stand there, uh, transfer their guilt onto that animal. The animal is then killed. The priests then take the blood. They splatter it against the altar, and it's repeated with all the various kinds of animals. Now think about this, just before we move on. This is a peace offering. This is a voluntary offering. This is not so much a sin offering or a guilt offering. This offering is actually a joyful offering that you bring why? Because you want to have fellowship with God. You want to just enjoy intimacy with God. But what's fascinating to me is still there had to be blood spilled. Even though it's not a sin offering or guilt offering or burn off, but still, you want to come and have fellowship and have a joyful time? And Okay, but still, there's got to be the death of an animal for your sins. And what this communicates to us, again, and it's going to be all through the book to the point where you're going to say, okay, I get it. You don't get to, Israelites, you don't get to just come before God's presence. You don't just get to walk in and have intimacy with God. You have to have your sin dealt with. And to have your sin dealt with, there needs to be the shedding of blood. What's it say later on? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Amen? And again, what it speaks to, listen, is the seriousness and the destructiveness of our sin that separates us from fellowship with God. And so even though it's a joyful, wonderful, good offering to bring, still some, something's got to die. There's going to be blood. When I first moved to Astoria, like 1999, 2000, right around there, uh, young, 26, 27, just starting the church there, and I got asked by... Um, um, this sweet lady in our community who runs CEF. You guys familiar with Ch Children Evangelism Fellowship? It's like uh, Good News Clubs. Anybody ever heard of those? Where they're basically clubs that still in, that go into public schools and have like a club time and they share the gospel with kids at public schools. It's amazing. It's awesome. So they invited me to come and do a couple of these lessons and I was like, wait, you wanna, you're asking me if I can go into a public school and tell these kids about Jesus? during school time? 
I'm in. So, you know, I, I'm teaching these, I got all these little third, fourth graders, whatever they were, all huddled on the floor, and I'm in the cafeteria uh, in Astoria, Oregon, and, and I'm just sharing about the love of Jesus, how he died for our sins so we can go to heaven. And this one little boy, I'll never forget, he raises his hand, just dead serious, and looks at me and goes, how many sins do we have to commit to not be allowed into heaven? My first reaction was like, dang, this guy's smart. He's doing the math right now. And I leaned in and looked him right in the eyes and I said, one. Or you're going to go to hell. No, I didn't, I didn't say it like that. I did not say it like that. But I did look at him and I go, one. One little white lie. One little stealing of a Skittle from the, you know, the candy jar. One little, any, because listen, any sin, all sin separates us from God. And we might look at sin as no big deal, but we're having reminders one after the other after the other that sin is rebellion against a holy God and is worthy of death. And we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God, the need for someone to take our place. It's all over the Bible. So all that to say is that whole procedure, whether it was oxen or goats or whatever, a lamb, was repeated. The laying of hands, slaughter, blood splatter, communicating that you don't just get to come into God's presence without sacrifice, without blood. Um, so that's kind of the similarities. There may be some more in there if I, if I didn't mind them all out. But let's look at some of the unique features. So those are things that, you know, we, we kind of read those same things about the burnt offering. But what are some of the unique features uh, that set the peace offering aside from everything else? Let me give you three or four or five dozen, uh, no, just three or four or five uh, things. Number one, interesting, I don't have much commentary on it, but um, did you guys notice that they were able to bring not only a male, but it could be male or female? For this particular, like, free will volunteer offering, God is like, he kind of broadens the strike zone, so to speak, wise, and says, just, yeah, whatever you want to bring. I got a little baseball reference in there. He says, male or female, you can bring them. Um, secondly, this is important because this kind of gets to the heart of the whole deal. Notice that this particular offering was unlike the burnt offering where the whole entire animal is placed up on the altar and burned communicating just like all of that animals given up to you, I'm giving all of my heart up to you. This particular offering, part of it was burned, but then most of it was kept back and given to the priests and the person who brought it, and they were able to enjoy it as a meal, as a food offering to the Lord, and the whole thing being communicated. By the way, it, this comes out a little clearer later on in chapter 7 when it talks, kind of reviews this a little bit and talks about how the eating of this meal. But the idea was is that you would bring the, the animal, part of it goes to God, but the, a big chunk of it comes back to you. And the idea is now you take that home and you sit around with your family or your friends and you eat the rest of this lamb or this ox or the bull or whatever, this cow, and you feast and you have a meal. And the idea is you're having not only a meal with your brothers and sisters, you're having a meal with God. You've, you've dedicated this meat to him. You're on good terms with him. You're just enjoying the fellowship with him and with one another. And it was this beautiful, wonderful, joyful thing. Another little tidbit that will come out later on in chapter 7, but I'll mention it now, is that what generally motivated this particular offering was thankfulness. It was called a thanksgiving offering. 
this is an offering. Now, just, all this will kind of hopefully pull the string and it'll all kind of come together at the end. But this was just an offering where you said, you know what? I'm not necessarily going to go ask God anything. I just want to go tell him thank you. I want to say thank you to him. And sometimes in the Psalms, it's referred to as a thank offering. I was actually in my own devotions this morning reading Psalm 116, and I came across verse 17 where it says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. Just pause there for a minute. What's the last time we just said, you know, Lord, in my prayer time right now, I still have my list and you and everything that's pressing on me, but I just want to stop, and even if it's a discipline, at first say thank you. You ever done that? I had a youth pastor, Steve Hunter, back in the day, my first ever youth pastor, and he called it Thankology. Whenever he was down, real smart guy, Thankology. And I always remember him, he drove this bright yellow convertible Volkswagen bug. And he would just talk about how he'd drive down the road, and when he was feeling down, he'd just start thanking God. And, and you start with the big things, like, God, thank you for the earth. Thank you for the sky, for creation. But then when you start thanking God, have you ever noticed when you start thanking him, you realize, oh my gosh, everything good in my life is from him. So then it's like, thank you for my wife. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for my mom and dad. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for the church. Thank you for cars. Thank you for cup holders and cars. Thank you for little yellow strips of, that divide the lanes so we don't crash into each other. Thank you, God. You just start, and it goes from like, I don't have anything to be thankful for. Then you're like, oh my gosh, I have everything to be thankful for. Amen? So that's a good practice. Anyway, so this was a Thanksgiving offering. I'm off track. Let's get back on. I do want to note this. Um, there's a really unique thing that kind of stuck out to me, and I think there's some, some, some importance to it. If you'll notice, and I think it's verse 5. Um, I'll read it. It says, Aaron's sons shall burn it, that is the portion that goes to God, on the altar on top of the burnt offering. Now, that's interesting. On top of the burnt offering. I, I was dig, did a little digging on that. And what does that mean? Was this something that you did along with the burnt offering? Not necessarily. The idea is after the burnt offering. You know, they would do a burnt offering in the morning, in the evening. But he's saying basically, once the burnt offering is taken care of, then bring your peace offering. Generally speaking, when the offerings were being offered, there'd be sin offering, guilt offering, burnt offering. The peace offering, listen, there's actually some theological nuance to this. The peace offering where you just enjoyed the fellowship came after the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the burnt offering, which was just total surrender to God. When do you really enjoy fellowship with God? When you realize your sins are forgiven and you've surrendered your life and there's nothing weird between you and God anymore, and you can just be in his presence. So just beautiful picture there. Then lastly, I don't know if you guys noticed how many times they use the word fat. <laughs> this part of the fat. You know, what, you know what portion God got? All the fat. And we're like, gross. I guarantee the Israelites were like, oh, I guess so, but kind of like, dang. Why? The fat was considered the best part. And, and the Lord's just like, now here's the graciousness of God. He's like, give me all the fat. And they, they may have been like, oh man, okay, whatever. We'll cut off all the fat and give you all the fat. He was saving so many thousands of people from heart attacks. Amen? You know, he's like, you don't get to eat that. I'll eat it, so to speak, as it burns up. 
But it is interesting to point out that they weren't allowed to eat fat and they weren't allowed to drink blood ever in these sacrifices. Why? The fat was the best and it went to God first. And there's that principle. You give your first and your best to the Lord. Amen? But secondly, you don't drink the blood. They weren't allowed to drink blood or have any of the blood there because blood speaks of, uh, well, it'll say later on in I think chapter 17, somewhere around verse 11, that the life is in the blood. Atonement is made with the blood. And so that was special. And they weren't to, to drink the blood. And so there's that ordinance there and it will continue on. Um, so th- that's kind of the, 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 uh, the peace offering with its procedures. But let's talk about what it pictures. The, the typology of, of, the, of the peace offering. And, and this is where I would say this isn't complicated. It, you've already done the math. It's not a, it's not a complicated application here. It's, it's simple, but I would say this. It's wonderfully simple. Sometimes the simple things are so, quote, unquote, simple that we miss how amazing they are. And so let's just marinate in it for a second. What does all this speak of? <laughs> Good job, Mitch. You did it. Okay, I, I, that was on me because I actually told you to do that. So that's the last time you'll ever interrupt me again. But that's, I'm just kidding, Mitch. <laughs> If you listen online, you know, or to the podcast, like every other teaching is like, okay, Mitch, like you are in more teachings than. (laughs) So what does this speak of? Jesus. All right. It speaks of Jesus. The peace offering, this voluntary, thank-motivated, peace, fellowship, friendship offering that was enjoyed by God and by the people that brought it all speaks of the fellowship and the intimacy that we can have with the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His Son. Amen? It, speak, it speaks of the, fe- maybe you didn't hear me, the fellowship, the communion, the unhindered closeness that we can just enjoy with God because Jesus Christ was the once and for all sacrifice for us, who he voluntarily gave himself, the Lamb of God, without spot, without blemish, so that we could come. Listen, and here's the great thing. Not once a month, not on special occasions. See, in the new covenant that we're under, because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice we can have unbroken fellowship with God any time we choose. Amen? We can just enjoy His presence. It's mind-blowing. What's fascinating to me about this is that the peace offering, listen, it might be a splitting of the hairs, but to me, it was kind of hit me. The peace offering was not so much so you could obtain peace with God. That was more of like the sin offering and the guilt offering. The peace offering was just celebrating the peace of God that you already had. Does that make sense? It wasn't so much getting, does that make sense? The peace offering wasn't offered so that you could make peace with God. That was actually kind of already done. The peace offering is actually just enjoying the peace the fellowship, the friendship that you have with God. 
Amen? That's why it was done last, like I was talking about earlier, because the, wor- the real work for your sin had to be done first, those other offerings. But once that's done, man, all that's out of the way. You can just be. You can just enjoy. You can just enjoy the communion and fellowship and, and wonderful intimacy with God. Amen? So the New Testament verse you might want to tack onto that or write in the margin is Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Therefore, being justified, declared righteous. How were we justified? And again, justification, theologically speaking, does not, is not just a, a, a righteous God declaring us forgiven. It is that. But it's a righteous God declaring us forgiven and righteous, like we talked about last week, imputed with the very righteousness of Jesus. That was taken care of when we came to Christ in humility and we were born again. We are justified. Having been, past tense, justified, we have currently, right now, peace with God. Amen? So if you've been justified with Christ, you can go and just enjoy fellowship with Him. Fellowship with Him. So, to kind of think this through a little bit more, and again, it, we're not going to labor it too much, but go to 1 John, other end of the Bible, like almost at the very end. 1 John. Listen to chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, starting about verse 3. 1 John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you, so that you too, okay, let me back that up. Verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, that is Jesus, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And that which we have seen and we heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, listen, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And look at verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our or your joy may be full or complete. Now this is where I want to just kind of not just theologically talk to you, but this is where the Lord just kind of met me on this whole thing. Is that John, later on in the New Testament, says, let me tell you about Jesus. We saw him. We touched him. He's eternal life, and he was manifested to us. We handled him. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and with you. And he's talking about fellowship with God, fellowship with Jesus, koinonia in the Greek, the idea of joint participation and intimacy and communion. In fact, the word communion is koinonia. He's like, we have this amazing koinonia with Jesus, you know, and... and And I lost my train of thought, but it's coming back. Oh, the verse 4, thank you. And he says, and I'm writing this to you so that your joy might be complete or full. Why was John telling them about their, reminding them that they have fellowship with Jesus? So that they would be bouncing off the walls with joy. And this is where I, I, I was thinking to myself, why am I joyless? so often. You know why I get joy less? My wife and I were talking about this the other day about joy. When I lose my joy, it's because I've taken my eyes off of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And I'm not enjoying fellowship with him. 
When I'm enjoying fellowship with him, I have joy in my heart. Amen? When I'm all about me and my thing and life's not going good for me and my little, and my little pity, I, I have so many pity parties and I invite people to them and no one ever comes. My wife never comes to my pity parties, ever. She just reminds me when I'm having one. But, guys, that just kind of hit me today. It's like, man, we, we have the potential of being the most joyful people on the planet, but our joy, I know we know this stuff, but our joy is not found in our stuff, and it's not found in, in, in achieving something on this earth or, or even great health or the perfect body or the perfect spouse. Or, I mean, those things are wonderful, but our joy is found in just communion with Jesus. And if you're joyless tonight, maybe it's because you've just forgotten how much you've been forgiven. And we can just say, by the blood of Jesus Christ, all my sins, I'm not going to hell. And I'm only not just not going to hell. I have peace with God, not just the absence of conflict, but I actually can have intimacy with him, eat a meal with him. Eating a meal in the Middle East is a very intimate thing. You know, it's fascinating to me in, at the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. It says that Jesus is knocking on the door, and he says, if anybody will let me in, I will come in and sup or have a meal with him. We use that, that, that verse in evangelistic circles, but he's actually talking to a church. He's saying, church, if you'll let me in, we can have fellowship together. And you know, so what kills our joy? Not having fellowship with God. And what kills our fellowship with God? Sin. Sin. And, and real quick, and we're almost done, and we're going to take communion, but sin is the fellowship killer, therefore the joy killer. Later on in chapter 1, he says this, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. Listen to the, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, verse 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? You might be in here tonight and say, well, whoop de do the peace offering, Leviticus 3, blah, blah, blah. Here's what it means for you. It means that was fulfilled by Jesus so that you and I could have fellowship with God. And that is where our joy is. And you may have come in tonight and maybe you're like, I just don't know where I'm at with the Lord anymore. I'm not as on fire as I used to be and I'm kind of joyless or I'm in this funk. And could it be that there's unconfessed sin in your life? He says, walk in the light. You know what walking in the light means? I used to think about this wrong. I used to think, i got to walk in the light. It means like, i got to walk in sinless perfection and don't step out of line. That's not what it means. Walking in the light means be open, honest, and naked before God. Call it what it is. God, I was a jerk today to my wife, you might say. I disrespected my husband today. I had a lustful thought today. Lord, I cut that guy off today. Lord, I murdered that guy in my heart today. And you know what I have found is the great, when you walk in the light, it means you're just walking in, in the light, and when you dip into a shadow real quick, <laughs> I mean the shadow, get out of that shadow, get back in the light, say, that was dumb, Lord, I'm, I did that. 
You know what the dumbest thing is to try to hide our sin or pretend we didn't do it or just like, okay, I was wrong, but I'm not going to mention it to God. He knows. He sees. And see, sin, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, sinning like messing up during the day, you're not going to lose your salvation. We're not talking about losing salvation. What you will lose is intimacy and closeness with God. Amen? That's what confession's about. Why do I need to confess if, theologically speaking, all my sins are forgiven? Yes, they are, but guess what? You still have the, oppor- you still have the capability of sinning, and when I sin or if I sin, I can just come and say, Lord, that was wrong, and I don't want to entertain that anymore, and I confess it. Confess, homo legeo is in the Greek. Homo meaning the same, legeo meaning to speak. It means to speak the same thing. Tell God what he already knows. God, today I am, um, I gossiped. God doesn't go, what? You did what? He's like, oh, I know. I've just been waiting for you to fess up. You see, when you do, there's such a freedom. There's nothing. We got a loose one. There's nothing hindering you anymore. Amen? You guys get the point. But I really feel in my heart, is we're just going to do one song. We have some communion here in a moment. Because... I just feel like there's some in here that tonight maybe just say, you know, I've been feeling condemned over my sin. I've been kind of hiding from God. I felt like I've messed up, so I guess I can't have really close fellowship. I've got to do some penance or, you know, pay God back somehow. No! You confess it, you believe it, you receive it, and you just walk in open, pure, unhindered, no weirdness, at the table with God fellowship. Amen? Amen. So let's pray, and then the guys will come up. We're going to do communion.